America has had a long list of stuntmen, daredevils who captured our imagination with their daring dues. In 1829, the Jersey Leaper named Sam Patch jumped 100 feet into the waters below Niagara Falls. In the 1920s, a flagpole sitter, Al Shipwreck Kelly, stayed aloft on top of a pole for an incredible 49 days. In the 1970s, Evil Knievel broke every bone in his body jumping motorcycles over cars and over water fountains. All these daredevils attracted huge crowds. It seems we're all mesmerized by daring stunts and stuntmen. And this very human tendency doesn't go unnoticed by God. In the Old Testament, when God's people Israel refused to listen to conventional communication, God resorted to stunts, object lessons, visual dramatizations. He would call on a prophet to perform a spiritual skit. And no one performed more of these living parables than Ezekiel. This is why I call Ezekiel the stuntman of the scriptures. God commissioned this prophet to do some wild, weird, strange, attention-grabbing stunts. All Ezekiel's antics were designed to seize the attention of the Jews in Babylon and to communicate to them vital truths concerning their faith and their future. Well, Tonight, in the four chapters we'll study, Ezekiel 4-7, through seven, the prophet is going to act out seven different visual parables. We begin in chapter 4. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Babylonians wrote on clay tablets or bricks. The archaeologists have unearthed many different examples. They were generally about a foot square, maybe the screen size of a laptop. Ezekiel's told to take one of these bricks and carve into its surface a detailed picture of the city of Jerusalem with its various walls, its different gates. We're told then lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Here's a task your little boys would probably enjoy. Ezekiel was to create little miniature battering rams and siege towers and reenact an attack on Jerusalem. (coughs) He may have even used some toy soldiers for all we know. It was like the epic battles my boys used to fight in the backyard. And there was a reason for this little reenactment. For God was about to use the Babylonians to lay siege to Jerusalem. What had become an idolatrous city would soon fall. You remember in the book of Jeremiah, the false prophets had been saying, peace, peace. This was the positive thinking crowd. Oh, don't worry, be happy. Everything will be okay. Whereas Jeremiah was warning just the opposite. In fact, these false prophets had the nerve. By this point, Babylon had already invaded Jerusalem twice. The king of Babel, Nebuchadnezzar, had deposed Judah's king, Jehoiakim, and taken him to captive to Babylon. But the false prophets were persistent. Not only in Jerusalem, but now in Babylon, there were these prophets saying that the Jewish exile would be brief, that God was still going to turn the tables on the Babylonians and deliver Jerusalem. 
Well, God raised up Ezekiel in his clay city to counter the false prophets. A final siege will occur. The city will be conquered. It will be destroyed. Babylon will be home for the Jews for the next 70 years. They need to accept their fate and settle down. They won't be going home anytime soon. It was a popular mess, an unpopular message, but it was the truth. Verse 3 tells us, Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. And again, God is still talking about this little miniature city made of clay. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. The iron plate was probably a cooking pan, maybe an iron skillet. It symbolized an impenetrable barrier between the people and God. Here's the picture that Ezekiel is creating. (coughs) Jerusalem will come under siege. And when the rebellious people cry out to God, he'll be behind this iron barrier. You know, sin is like an iron plate. Cuts off a person or a people from God. It prohibits their prayers from rising. It prohibits God's blessings from falling. The only cure is repentance. The first prayer that God always answers is the prayer of repentance. So we've got the miniature city. We've got the iron plate. But now God commissions skit two. Lie also on your left side. And lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. This is bizarre. Ezekiel is literally being called to lie down on the job. Recall, after after Solomon's reign, the Hebrew kingdom split into two. The northern ten tribes were governed from Samaria and became known as Israel, while the southern tribe of Judah stayed loyal to Jerusalem. Here Ezekiel is to dramatize God's judgment on both nations By lying on his side, a day for each year of judgment. He's to lie on his left side for 390 days. That is 13 Babylonian months, more than a year. (coughs) Then he's to flip over on his right side and lie there another 40 days for the 40 years of judgment that's coming on the nation Judah. Ezekiel is in Babel, and so his head was pointed toward Jerusalem. That means that on his left side, he would be facing northward toward Israel, and on his right side, he would be facing south toward Judah. Verse 7. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arms shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it, and surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. Apparently, the prophet Ezekiel isn't allowed to roll over until he finishes the required time on both sides. Now, if you read the commentaries, a large number of them suggest that Ezekiel didn't actually spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 430 days on his side. 
they assumed that this was sort of an intermittent fulfillment of the prophecy. That he took the posture at only certain times of the day. Maybe he'd go out in the afternoon or during rush hour or whatever and he would take the posture so that he could set up and the people would see what he was doing. But that he wasn't there all day long. But that's conjecture. We really don't know. To me, the language seems to apply something extraordinary. The Lord says, I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another. The word restrain means to tie down with ropes. The prophet is strapped in position. His movement is being restricted. I would think he literally stayed in a reclined position for 430 days. And he was probably supernaturally assisted. Either way, imagine the saddle sores. You know, patients restricted to a hospital bed for lengthy periods of time, they end up with serious bed sores. This would have been true of Ezekiel's lying down on the job. And you know, obedience to God can often produce some saddle sores. When you're called by God to remain in an uncomfortable place, or in a difficult situation, or maybe in a troublesome relationship, you get antsy, don't you? You start to get sore. There's friction starts to create some sores. You want to squirm. You try to escape. But God restricts our movements at times. He tells us to stay put. Sore spots can fester. Maybe it's a job you can't stand. Maybe it's a marriage that's become strained. Maybe it's a friendship that's being tested. Perhaps it's a church you've grown tired of. Hopefully not this church. And yet God has called you to stick it out, to stay with it. Everyone else is saying, you need to take a stand. Whereas God is saying, you need to stay on the right side. It's not easy to just lie down when you feel like walking off. And God has supernatural cords to keep us in such a position. It's not always apparent, but it's when we're stretched. It's in the awkward postures of our lives that God is working something needful and wonderful in us. It's interesting, God does make one concession for Ezekiel. He allows him the freedom of his arm. Most preachers can't talk without using their arms anyway. And so if he's going to convey his message, he's got to be able to use at least one arm. And so Ezekiel is allowed his one arm to write, to feed himself, etc. And what do we make of the punishment's length? The 390 days for Israel and the 40 years for Judah. When you try to tie these time frames to historical fixed points, it gets very difficult. There are lots of theories. None of them fit exactly. It seems the sands of time have obscured the exact dates. I'll offer you my educated guess. Israel's 390 years of judgment could extend from the reign of their first king, Jeroboam, and their split from the southern tribe of Judah until the Jews returned to Jerusalem after the 70 years of exile in Babylon. Remember, trouble started for the northern kingdom in 931 B.C. when Jeroboam set up the two golden calves in Dan and Bethel as an alternative to God's temple in Jerusalem. It was a devastating mistake from which Israel never really recovered. In a sense, the moment the northern ten tribes cut themselves off from the worship of the true God in Jerusalem, their judgment was fixed. 
And it lasted until 536 B.C. when members of the northern tribes who had become part of Judah and been taken into exile returned to Jerusalem. And so, from 931 to 536, you have 395 years. Not exactly 390, but we're in the ballpark. 390, give or take five years. As for the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. According to Jeremiah 52, verse 30, the last Jewish deportation to Babylon took place in 581 B.C. That could be when Judah's judgment begins. It, too, ends in 536 B.C. when the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem. So, from 581 to 536 B.C., you have 45 years. That's exactly 40 give or take five years. And that's the best I can offer about that. But as if lying on his side was not enough, God lays on Ezekiel an even heavier burden. He puts him on a diet. You think laying on his side is one thing, but being on a diet, if any of you have been there, you know that's tough. Verse 9 tells us, Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food which you eat shall be by weight. 20 shekels a day from time to time you shall eat it. Wheat, barley, lentils, etc. represent a sparse vegetarian diet. This is the type of food rationing that cities require when they're under siege. And notice the meager portions, 20 shekels would be just 10 ounces. And so again, he's illustrating what life will be like when Jerusalem is laid siege by the Babylonians. He says, you shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen. From time to time you shall drink. Now a hen was an ancient measurement of six quarts. So one-sixth is a single quart. Again, this illustrates the rationing that will go on in Jerusalem when the Babylonian army hems the city in. He says, And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Now, whoa, Nelly. Whoa. Now we're getting tough. But when a city's under siege... And the supply lines get cut off. The first luxury item that stops shipping is Kingsford charcoal. Everybody knows that. And so people under siege, they have to resort to more primitive fuels. After you've burned up all the firewood and broken up all the wooden furniture, all that's left is crap. Literally. Human waste becomes cooking fuel. And Ezekiel is to use it as a preference, no less. Again, he is epitomizing the siege conditions that are coming upon Jerusalem. Verse 13, Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. So I said, O Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beast, 
nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. Now remember, Ezekiel was a Hebrew priest as well as a prophet. And he had prepared himself by remaining holy to the Lord. From his youth, he had diligently kept the law, including its dietary code. In Leviticus 19, verse 19, the law of Moses had prohibited the mixing of grains. This made Ezekiel's diet non-kosher. You remember, it was a mixture of grains. The law even gave instructions on how to defecate. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12 stated, You shall have a place outside the camp. You may not have known this was in the Bible, but here it is. Where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. This was healthy sanitation. And it obviously precluded using your dung as cooking fuel. In both regards, God's command to Ezekiel would have violated aspects of the law. Here was a priest, no less. He should be keeping God's law, and yet God is telling him otherwise. He's confused. Verse 16, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure and with dread that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. You see, rather than teach his people how to observe the ceremonial and symbolic aspects of the law, God is warning them of how to survive in a life and death crisis. The Jews are going to face catastrophic conditions. They're going to be laid sieged by an invading army, and it's going to be terrible. God does provide Ezekiel a concession in his reenactment here. Rather than human waste, he is allowed to cook over a cow patty. This is a merciful move on God's part, no doubt about it. Ezekiel is being asked by God to put his commands ahead of his religious training, even his own conscience. To make it easier for him, he allows him to use cow poop. It's interesting, usually our conscience is God's tool to help us sort out right from wrong. But there are times when our conscience becomes our enemy. Remember, the conscience is a body member that gets trained. It gets programmed. Religious training and a person's upbringing help to program our conscience. And at times, our conscience serves us well, but at other times, it can betray us. You remember, much like Ezekiel, Peter too had been trained by a legalistic Jewish heritage. He too had been raised kosher. This is why it surprised Peter when God called on him to go to the picnic where everything on the menu was unclean. You remember, God told Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, not so, Lord. God went on to show Peter that he would change the rule. He could change the rules when need be. God makes the rules, he can change the rules. What once was considered unclean, God now deemed proper. And if God could do this with foods, he could also do this with people. 
Though the Gentiles had been considered unclean in times past, God was cleansing them now through the cross of Jesus Christ. God was doing a new work to bring unclean Gentiles into His family. And like Peter and Ezekiel, if you've ever lived under strict legalistic training, there may come a time when your conscience works to oppose the grace of God. When that time comes, it's vital to remember 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. We're told, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. When your conscience contradicts God's grace, listen to God, not your conscience. God is greater than our heart, John says. See, Ezekiel had a hard time corralling his conscience when it came to human waste. This was just more than he could bear. This was probably a bigger hurdle to jump than Peter had to jump over. We assume Peter's unclean meat was at least cooked over some nice firewood. It was tough for a priest to cook over human feces, and so God lets him use cow patties. And I believe Ezekiel still heard God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Chapter 5. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword. Take it as a barber's razor. and Pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. Imagine men having to shave with a sword. That could get a little dicey, couldn't it? I'm prone to nick myself with a good razor. If I had to shave with a sword, I'd come out of the bathroom cut to ribbons, bleeding everywhere. And Ezekiel is called by God to not only shave his face and his beard, but his entire head. I imagine the guy had nicks and slashes and gashes all over himself. Probably went through a whole box of Band-Aids. You'd think he'd been in a knife fight. And that was exactly the effect that God was after. The Jewish population that will, become, that will be under siege is going to end up sliced and diced, slaughtered by the Babylonian army. And so Ezekiel's looking like one of those persons who's going to go through that terrible tragedy. Ezekiel was also told to weigh and divide the shavings for a reason. He says, you shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword. And one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them, again the shavings, again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. For there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. What Ezekiel does with his shavings illustrates what's going to happen to the Jews in Jerusalem. A third are going to die from the terrible conditions that will prevail during the siege. A third will die from the invasion in the Babylonian army. A third will be scattered to foreign lands and they'll end up dying there. A small few will be protected in the hem of God's garment. They'll be taken back to Babylon or allowed to continue in the land of Judah. And the last group will flee to Egypt only to be slain there. Verse 5 tells us, thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. 
You know, Jerusalem is set in the midst. Jerusalem is situated at the earth's center, both geographically and strategically. Even today, events that occur in Jerusalem, they end up as headlines in the news, in papers all around the world. And yet God says of Jerusalem, She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations are all around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. God compares the obedience of the Jews with the conduct of the pagan nations around them. His own people were worse than their idolatrous neighbors. He had put them in the center of the nations to be a witness. Instead, they'd been an embarrassment. The Jews had been given great privilege. God had intervened in their history. He had given them His law. Yet their behavior was worse than the ignorant Gentiles. And this should teach us a lesson. For with privilege comes greater responsibility. God holds His people accountable. And this should be a warning to us. For of all people, those of us who are in Christ are the most blessed. We're the most privileged. God has lavished upon us His grace. Therefore, we need to be faithful. Verse 9 tells us, And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again, because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain, I will scatter to all the winds. The sins of the people will be so despicable that God will pull out all the stops in meeting out punishment. Notice, God acts in a way that He admits He may never act that way again. And here's another byproduct of the siege, the coming siege on Jerusalem. Food will be so scarce that the Jews living inside the city will resort to cannibalism. Fathers will eat sons and sons will eat fathers. I mean, these are devastating plagues that God reserves for extreme disobedience. But remember, after all He had done for Israel... For them to in turn dive so deeply into idolatry, it called for a radical attention-getting judgment on God's part. And they'll endure it. And you wonder if this won't be God's attitude in the last days. You know, that God will put forth a judgment that He's never put forth before and that He might never do again. It'll be a unique kind of judgment. Right now, God is offering salvation to mankind. He's waiting until the world is ripe for judgment, the judgment of all judgments, what the Scripture calls the great tribulation. Recall what Jesus said of the end times in Matthew chapter 24. <coughs> then there will be great tribulation, 
such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be, similar to the language we've read here. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, serious sin calls for serious punishment. And in lieu of today's unbridled abominations, the most severe may be yet to come. He says, therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, Therefore, I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. And here God is referring to what the Jews did in the temple courtyards. In the days of King Manasseh and King Jehoiakim, they brought their idols into the Holy of Holies, into the resting place of God's glory. This was disgusting. This was terrible. In the heart of the temple, in the place of God's presence, they defiled it with idols. You know, today Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You and I, our bodies are reserved for God. And we can defile the temple by making an idol of something in our lives. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 told us, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you are bought at a price Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, verse 12 tells us, One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. Sounds like God is not someone you want to trifle with. God is going to make the Jews an object lesson to the surrounding peoples of what happens when you refuse to live up to the spiritual privileges you've been given. He says, when I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And it's hard to talk about cannibalism and fathers eating sons and sons eating fathers. And so... Before we move on, I've got one more cannibal joke for you to kind of lighten the mood here a little bit and kind of help us get through the chapter. Several weeks ago, I told a few cannibal jokes, and I got some good response from some of you. Afterwards, as a matter of fact, JP told me an even better one. Two cannibals, they're eating a pastor, and one of them starts choking. He's gagging. His buddy asks him, he says, what's wrong? Are you okay? He clears his throat, and he says, oh, I'm okay. 
It's just hard to keep a good man down. And I promise that's the last of the cannibal jokes. Tonight, in chapter 6 and 7, Ezekiel further explains his actions in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 4 and 5 were the dramatizations. Now chapters 6 and 7 are sort of the divine editorials. Chapter 6. Now when the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and to the valleys, Indeed I... Even I will bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. It's as if the people aren't listening to God, so he speaks to the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the ravines. He speaks to the land. It's God's way of saying to the people of Judah, Hey, anybody home over there? Then your altars shall be desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain men before your idols, And I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. See, in all ancient religions, the scattering of bones, the coming in contact with dead objects, desecrates the altar of the God. Here, their own dead bodies will defile the altars of their idols. He says, in all your dwelling places, the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, your idols may be broken and made to cease, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. Now remember, in the Old Testament, altars to idols were always built on elevated platforms, these so-called high places. The ancients assumed that the closer you got to heaven, or the higher you ascended, the easier it would be to get the attention of your God. And thus, the high places became notorious outposts for all kinds of idolatry. And remember, God was against these high places. Even if the altar might be dedicated to Him, God knew that this kind of rogue, individualized into some kind of idolatry. That's why God outlawed the high places. And He centralized His worship to the temple. Verse 7 says, The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that idolatry was merely a problem in ancient times, a temptation for primitive cultures, and it's no concern for us in modern times. Social critic Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, Men are idolaters and want something to look at, and kiss, and hug, and throw themselves down before. They always did, they always will, and if you don't make it out of wood, you must make it out of words. Idols are not just images made of wood or metal. They can be items, identities, ideas, even ideals. An idol may sit in your driveway. You may cheer for your idol on Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. 
Or your idol could be a philosophy that captures the hearts of thousands. I like how Paul Tillich defines an idol. Idolatry is the elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. It's the elevation of a preliminary concern to ultimacy. See, life is full of preliminaries. Making money, buying a house, going on vacation, how the Braves do this season. These are all preliminaries. There's nothing wrong with them. They're things we have to deal with. But when a preliminary gets exalted to ultimacy, it becomes an idol. Our hearts are fickle. They easily get distracted and they get pulled toward lesser things. And idols, potential idols, are everywhere. St. Augustine once stated, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshipped. Idols are still a threat to us today. This is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, Flee from idolatry. Verse 8 tells us, Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered through the countries. God will not judge all of the Jews. He'll leave behind in every country a faithful remnant who will remain loyal to Him. And then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. Because I was crushed by their adulterous heart, which has departed from me, and by their eyes, which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I will bring this calamity upon them. And when I read those words, do you feel God's pain? I hope you do. Do you hear His heartbreak? God says, I was crushed by their adulterous heart. What adultery is to a marriage relationship, idolatry is to our relationship with God. It's spiritual infidelity. Realize in issuing these judgments that we've read on God's people, God was not playing the part of some cold, calculating, uncaring judge. Rather, He was reacting as a jilted lover. God is the loyal and adoring husband who has lived for years to serve the one He loves, only to have His spoiled, fickle, selfish wife turn on Him and run into the arms of another man. And then, despite his pleadings for her to return, she chooses to live in open adultery, carrying on a love affair in public, where everyone can mock and laugh at the gullibility of her faithful husband. She has no regard for his feelings or reputation. She shames him with her public nudity by performing intimate acts with anyone and everyone. You see, this is what God had to endure from His people Israel for centuries. Not just weeks or months or years, but for centuries. Read it again. I was crushed by their adulterous heart. I was crushed. It's hard to fathom the almighty 
was crushed. Turn that over in your brain a couple of times. Apparently, God gives His people power over His own heart. This is what love does, doesn't it? It makes us vulnerable to the person we love, to the hurts, to abuse. Hey, as Christians, we should realize that when we flirt with the world, when we toy with idols, when we snuggle up to things we know are displeasing to God, we are crushing God's heart. A child of God can delight the Lord, but we can cause Him great pain. Ezekiel says God's heart was crushed by the whorish deeds of His people Israel. And notice back in verses 4 and 6 when God talks about breaking their idols. It's the same Hebrew word that's here translated crushed. God will do to the idols what His idol-seeking people have done to His own heart. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord God, Pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword by famine and by pestilence. Here's another attention-grabbing stunt for Ezekiel to perform. He's to pitch a fit, in essence. Throw a temper tantrum. Pound his fist. Stomp his feet. Condemn Israel's idolatry and predict disaster. He who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. And he who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus will I spend my fury upon them. Remember, this was all illustrated by Ezekiel's shave and the distribution of his hair. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when they're slain or among their idols, all around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, under every green tree, and under every thick oak, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols. I mean, when the carcasses of the Jews are found on their high places, the altars of their idols, then they'll all know that their idols were vain. And that God is truly God. So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla in all their dwelling places. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. We've seen this phrase now numerous times. It's a theme in Ezekiel. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7 Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now, chapter 7 is interesting because it's judgment set to verse. It's really a poem of punishment. When you read it in the Hebrew, it has a rhythmic cadence to it. False prophets had been predicting deliverance for the Jews. And now Ezekiel says, not so. There's an end. The end will come. There is an end of the road for Jerusalem and for the land. And it's the end of the road for the Jews. For he says, now the end has come upon you. And I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. And I will repay you for all your abominations. Verse 4. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. 
but I will repay your ways and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster, behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you. You who dwell in the land, the time has come. A day of trouble is near and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. The Lord who strikes. And what a striking name for God. Jehovah Naka. Literally, the God who strikes. I doubt if any of you have thought about God this past week as the God who strikes. But maybe you should. For He is the God who hits back. He is the God who spanks. He is the God who lashes out when needed. He is the God who strikes with fury and with vengeance when sin needs to be punished and when justice needs to be served. God is not a spineless God. He's not just a little Cupid flying in the sky looking for people to shoot with his little arrows. God is a God of justice and righteousness. Hey, If God wasn't a God of justice and righteousness, His mercy would mean nothing to us. You can't just blaspheme God over and over. And disregard His holiness and take His grace for granted and expect God to just grin and bear it. There comes a point when God strikes back. To be just, when a sinner strikes God, God has to strike back. Now, this is what makes God's grace so amazing. When God decided to address and resolve the penalties for sin once and for all, to atone for the sinner, to deal and address sin, the God who strikes, instead of striking the sinner, God struck His only Son. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says of Jesus, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The God who strikes became stricken. The Jews struck him. The Romans struck him. Isaiah says that we struck him too. But understand, above all, his father struck him. The God who strikes struck his only son. And here is the irony of all ironies. 
It's the stripes that we inflicted on him that he has now used to bring our healing. This truly does make God's grace amazing grace. God could have struck us. We would have been, he would have been just in doing so. He would have been right in doing so. Because of his love for us, he struck his only son. And Jesus died in our place. Again, there's rhythm to this chapter. I guess you could say it's violence set to verse. The poetry continues in verse 10. Behold the day. Behold, it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude. None of them. Nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. In other words, commerce will cease in Jerusalem. Babylon will control the business of the city. He says, they have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready. But no one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all the, their multitude. In the mo- final moments, when the time comes, the Hebrew military will fail. When the battle trumpet sounds, no one will have the will to fight. The Jewish troops will become an army of deserters and cowards. He says, the sword is outside and the pestilence and famine within. Again, when a city surrounded, when it's been laid siege to... Starvation is on the inside and the sword is on the outside. Danger surrounds the city. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword and whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble and every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face, baldness on all their heads. And this is not a meeting of the hair club for men. A shaved head was a sign of great grief. It was a sign of mourning. Again, these are the things that are going to befall the Jews who live in Jerusalem and who live in the surrounding areas when the Babylonians lay siege to the city. Verse 19, They will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuse Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. In other words, in the end, all of their wealth will be useless. Their silver and gold will no longer have any buying power. It won't buy what they need, that's for sure. It won't buy food. It won't buy peace. And he says, as for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty. They made from it the images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuse to them. I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. Here, Ezekiel is talking about the temple. The beautiful jewel in the crown of Jerusalem was the temple temple of Solomon. But hordes of Babylonian warriors will trample the courts of the temple. They'll strip it. 
of its gold and silver. Temple robbers will loot its treasures and defile God's once sacred precincts. His secret place, he says, will be defiled. Eventually, they'll burn the temple to the ground. Verse 23, make a chain where the land is filled with crimes of blood and the city is full of violence. Here's another stunt for God's stunt man. He's to make a chain. It's to illustrate the bondage that is now on the horizon. The Jews are going to be chained and they're going to be taken back to Babylon as exiles in a strange and foreign land. Therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles and they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp, that is the pretense, the stuck uppedness of the Jews, of the strong to cease. Those who acted like they were strong will be proven to be weak. And their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. They'll look to the false prophets for some assurance, but at this point, the false prophets, they'll be nowhere to be found. They will have tucked tail and ran. The Babylonians will be present, looting the shops and pillaging the homes and even trampling the temple. Verse 27, the king will mourn. The prince will be clothed with desolation and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way and according to what they deserve. I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And notice those terrifying words. According to what they deserve, I will judge them. May that never be said of you or of me. None of us want what we're owed. None of us want what we deserve. You know what you deserve? Death and hell. You know what I deserve? Death and hell. None of us want what we deserve. We want mercy, not justice.